Are you guys ready to talk about the last? So, one of my children asked me today, are we going to talk about Easter today? Or are we going to talk about the last questions in the New City Catechism? And I said, funny you should ask that. Because I'm just going to read through these real quick so you see what our questions are. Question, we're doing 49, 50, 51, and 52 this week. Question 49, where is Christ now? That's great. Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is sealed, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is good. That is so appropriate that that would be the question and answer for today. Ephesians chapter 1 says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the first Russian cosmonaut goes into space before anybody else. He's up there and he looks around and he says, I see no evidence of heaven or of God. Like that just proves that communism is right because I flew up into heaven and I don't see anything. And the poor guy, like, can you imagine looking at the earth from space and looking at all the stars and saying that there's no evidence of God in all of that? Uh, the funny thing is, we talk about God is above us or God is in heaven. And heaven is a, a we get that from a Greek word for the sky. So God is up in the sky. And, and that kind of trickles into us from Greek Greek mythology of, of Mount Olympus and the gods are up above us watching and the stupid Bette Midler song that God's watching us from a distance, which I'm just going to say is a big fat lie from hell. God is among us. You guys, a great guy, uh, a great book called divine conspiracy. Um, I'll remember by Dallas Willard. He describes heaven and he describes heaven in such a great way that it's, the, the air all around us. Because where does the sky begin? Right? Doesn't the sky begin like an eighth of a millimeter above the ground? <laughs> so when Jesus would talk about our Father in heaven, he's talking, he, he is meaning our Father who's all around us. Just in that, what we now call the atmosphere, right? Jesus, in Jesus' day, in Moses' day, they didn't have a concept of atmosphere and, and the various levels and the various thicknesses that are protecting us from radiation and holding in oxygen and all of that. So they would talk about the three-tiered kingdom. And it's God and all the spiritual stuff and all of us and all of the dead people. And those are the three things. And all the dead people go down and all... God and angels are all up and here we are. And so whenever they talk about in the Bible up into heaven, they're talking from a concept of everything that's up there. Not necessarily. I mean, they thought it was physically up there, right? Because they just couldn't even fathom telescopes and the universe and all that business. 
So you got to think that that's how they're thinking when they talk about Christ went up to the throne beside God, the right hand of the Father. It's not that he went up there, right? It's that he went up to a place of authority. There's a place of authority where God is, and he is ruling over everything. Okay, so the police chief rules over all of the police. But what if a policeman goes up on Wright's Hill? Then that policeman is over all of the other police because he's up on Wright's Hill. Well, what if you go up into somebody's attic on Wright's Hill? Now that policeman is over. See how the whole over and above thing breaks down really fast? So when it talks about Jesus being over, God being over, it's not a thing that you can measure with a ruler. So that makes, oh, I mean, uh, with a, a yardstick. He is a ruler. That's a joke, Easter joke. God rules from on high, but he's not on Wright's Hill versus somebody at the bank of the Ohio River, right? So where is Christ now? He is ruling on high. He is seated in heavenly places. Question number 50. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? I love it that they have this question in here. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? I mean, come on. 2,000 years ago, dude raises from the dead. What? Now remember, the answers in this book are all incomplete and too small. Christ triumphed over sin and death so that all who trust in him are raised to the new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. That's a pretty good answer. It, it's one of those answers that's simple and you can memorize it, but it will take you your whole life to figure out what it means. Because Christ's resurrection from the dead means that everything he said was right. Everything he said, oh, you know what? What if he, what if that whole so then all of a sudden you start thinking back over all of his teachings. And if he had so much authority to teach those things that he rose from the dead. Uh, Chuck Colson was a guy you guys have probably heard, heard tapes of him or watched videos of him talk or whatever. He was involved in the Watergate scandal, the Watergate. And he went to prison and got out of prison and he became a Christian while he was in prison because of Watergate. Because he knew how many guys had conspired together to keep a lie. And he saw how that was just impossible. That somebody's going to leak. Somebody's going somebody's to mess up. And, and whether on purpose or on accident, let it slip that the lie was a lie. And he looked at the 12 apostles and he looked at the hundreds of people that followed Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead and how they either really kept a really good lie or it really happened. And he was like, we had like five of us and we couldn't even keep a good lie. I can't imagine how you could have that many people. And that was the funny little thing that, that did it for him, that, that flipped the switch and helped him to believe. Christ's resurrection is true. Gosh, there's so much stuff that is true that Jesus talked about. 
And that means a lot for us. Question number 51. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? So Jesus going up to the right hand of the Father. And this is pretty much going to be my whole sermon today. So we're going to skip over it. <laughs> Christ is now advocating for us in the presence of his Father and also sends us his Spirit. Oh my goodness. That is just the most awesome thing. The very last question. Question 52. What hope does everlasting life hold for us? And I just... Um, yeah, this is... This is the biggest question ever, right? What hope does everlasting life with God hold for us? The answer in here that we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new heaven and the new earth where we will be forever freed from all sin in a renewed, restored creation. You guys, heaven is going to be so awesome. Just in the fact that it's eternal. Just in the fact that it's great and it's greatness that will never end. Every time I go to Dairy Queen, I try to get a little thing because I don't want the gift card to run out too fast. Thank you all. And every time I do that, I'm like, I should have gotten a bigger size because it's over now. I was even jockeying yesterday, like, how big's a blizzard? How big's a shake? If I get a shake, I get something bigger for cheaper and last longer. And I was done with my peanut butter shake before grace was done with her blizzard and i was eyeing her blizzard she felt at risk no. heaven won't end but it won't be boring so put those two things together it will be good it will never be boring and it will never end which is just just that little bit blows my mind because how could that i mean i get bored easy right Wow. Okay. But it's also Easter Sunday. So I want to put, I want to put, we, we experience Easter today in a certain way. And we love Easter and it's great. I want to also put it in an old, old, old context so that you can think about both of them at the same time. Okay. So Easter today, we're driving away from our house. And there's our park across the street and there's Easter eggs hidden all over the place and they probably got candy in them. I doubt they got money in them, but I know money, candy, that's a whole, that's the whole game, right? And it's like, there's something hidden and there's something I want to look for and I want to find it. And it's not exactly just handed to you. Uh, one year we, we went to Crossroads and they, you know, they got 40 acres and they put all these Easter eggs out in these big open fields and they use caution tape to section off what age groups are gonna be in what section. And then we got like six inches of rain in 19 minutes or something ridiculous. And all of that flooded and all the Easter eggs washed towards the sewer drain. And they were just in this huge heap. So as you drive in to come to the Easter egg hunt, there's just this heap of Easter eggs over here at this drainage ditch and a heap of Easter eggs over here at this drainage ditch. And then this one didn't really drain. It was just like a foot of water with a whole bunch of Easter eggs just bobbing. And I'm sure all the kids were like, I want to go there. I want to get those eggs. So yeah, it was crazy. There is something in the character of God that we reflect 
in that we want to search for something. God knows that a lot of our identity is wrapped up in the thing that we're going for, the thing that we're trying to achieve. When you meet a guy and you say, so what do you do? He says what his job is because his job is his pursuit, right? That's like kind of a little bit of what we are. I'm this thing that I'm pursuing. And so God sets up this thing that we would pursue him. And it's really beautiful. And it really, it it defines us in a lot of ways. So we're going to start exactly where you should start on Easter Sunday in Exodus 25. Moses has taken everybody out of the promised land. There's been a whole bunch of other people coming with them. They get the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all written and experienced and lived out in this time. And it's kind of like the Bill of Rights because we're setting up a government because you you all don't even know how to live. You've been slaves for 400 years. But it's also uh, religious rules. And here's how to interact with your God that you've never interacted with before. And so God tells Moses a whole bunch of things. But in Exodus 25.10, he talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, you should make an ark of acacia wood. Now, ark was a general word for a box that would hold things. So we hear ark. The only time we ever hear ark is Noah's ark and the ark of the covenant, right? It's like a container. You're going to make a container. You're going to make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half. A cubit and a half its breadth. A cubit and a half its height. Here's how big it is. God's given Moses the dimensions. You're going to overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. Inside and outside, it's going to be gold. Like this isn't like the, the chintzy wooden box that you cover on the outside with gold and then you put contact Spider-Man contact paper on the inside, right? This is the real deal. All covered with gold, inside and out. And you're going to make a molding of gold all around it, like a, like a trim. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Exodus 25, 17. You're going to make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half will be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. You're going to make a lid. You're going to make a lid for this box. But he calls the lid a mercy seat. Hmm. You're going to put two cherubim of gold, two angels made out of gold. Hammered work you will make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. And one cherubim is going to be on this end. One's going to be on the other end. And they're going to be one big piece of metal that you're going to hammer. So they would have a block of gold. And they would hit it. Bink, 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 bink. And by hitting it, you're going to dent it and bend it. And you're going to keep on hitting it and denting it. You're going to, you know, put it on an anvil or put it on a rock, put it on a thing, put it on this. And tap, 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 tap. And gold is really soft. And you can bend it, and this is kind of like um, this is kind of like a bored kid after you eat lunch and you got your aluminum foil and you make some weird thing out of your aluminum foil, and you're kind of hitting it on the table to make it fold the right way. That's how the Ark of the Covenant lid is made by hammering gold. 
two angels. They spread out their wings, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces are looking towards each other and toward the mercy seat will their faces be looking. So you got this wooden box. It's gold inside and out. It's got some trim on it. And then you're going to make a lid out of it that's solid gold. And that's the mercy seat, which is just the weirdest name for it. Exodus 25, 21. You will put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you will put the testimony that I shall give you. That's the second time he said that. Inside the ark, you're going to put the testimony I give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandments for the people. So you're going to make this thing and it's going to have wings and the angels are going to have wings and they're going to be looking at each other over the thing. And it's the mercy seat. Okay, I've told the story before, so bear with me. When my first son was born, he was born at St. Mary's and we were like, yes, and we we're so glad he was born. And we went downtown to get his birth certificate and it was awesome and everything. Yes. And then we have our second son out at the women's hospital. And yes, and we're so happy. And they're like, you got to go get the birth certificate. Do you know how to do that? And I said, yes. And they said, don't forget, it's in Boonville. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we're technically in Warwick County, even though the line for Vandenberg County is right there. And Boonville is there because it's the county seat. And that's where you get your birth certificate. So for the next four kids, we had to truck 45 minutes out to Boonville and go up these stairs and down this hall and all these things that are unfamiliar. We don't even pay our water bill there. We don't know the place at all. And we go there and we get our birth certificates because it's the county seat. There's that word again. So the word seat is kind of an old word for the place where the authority of that thing is. So the county seat is the place where all the authority for the county is. So if you're in Warwick County, anything that you want to do involving the government, you have to go to Boonville to do because that's the county seat. If you want to do anything with mercy, you have to go to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant because that's where the head of mercy is sitting. That is where the authority of mercy is. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark, you will put the testimony that I will give you. And so for years, when God and Moses wanted to talk to each other, then once Moses was gone, the high priest only once a year with all just the right sacrifices and just the right things, he could go in by candlelight, by well, not really candle, by oil lamp light. He could go in to the Ark of the Covenant and there's the two angels and there's their wings over the top and there's the mercy seat. And that's where they could ah, talk to God and they would put the blood of atonement on the Ark on that one day out of the year. Um, then there's all kinds of other folklore, which we don't know. It could be true. It could be not that um, the, the priest's robe had bells on it. And so everybody could wait outside and listen 
because if he got struck dead, the bells would quit ringing. And then you know he's dead because he got too close or he did something wrong. Um, There's stories of having a hook that they could grab him and pull their dead body out because he didn't want to go in there after him because he knew he'd get struck dead. All that is kind of legend and folklore, and it could be true and it might not be, but we don't know. What? Okay. So they make the Ark of the Covenant. They make it, they use it. And what were the directions? In the Ark, you will put the testimony that I will give you. So Jesus comes, and it's funny, different denominations do this different ways, and here we are, it's Easter morning. And so we don't have a Good Friday service, we don't have a Tenebrae service, I talked to a guy about Tenebrae the other day, we don't have a Holy Saturday, so we have to put all the grief and anguish and mourning of Good Friday and the lostness of Saturday all into Easter morning. Well, okay, so there it is. So Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He suffers and he is really, really dead. The custom was they didn't want to have anybody. They they would hang people on crosses and the Romans got really good at this. So they would be hanging there and suffering for days and days. So that every time you walked by and every time you went to the market, you would see these suffering people. And you'd be like, dude, I am not going to do whatever they did. Because that, that was bad. I don't want that to happen to me. I'm going to obey Rome. I'm going to do everything Rome says because I don't want to end up like that. And so Jesus gets crucified during the day. And that night begins the Sabbath. Because the Jewish days, they started in the evening when the sun went down. And so they don't want this guy to be up here dying and rotting over the whole Sabbath because they can't do anything with him until after the Sabbath, which would be Saturday night when the Sabbath ends, but nobody wants to touch a dead body at night because, you know, movies. Still, same same scariness of, of dead people was alive then as it is now. So they wouldn't be able to do anything with the dead body till Sunday morning. And so two guys... Joseph of Arimathea and Barnabas, uh, Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who are members of the Sanhedrin. These are high-level Jewish guys. They say, hey, can we take Jesus' body down before the Sabbath begins? Because we're about ready to have this 24 hours of, of rest, and we, we can't do that during the rest time. And Pilate says, yeah. Go ahead, uh, finish him off, kill him, and then go ahead and get him down. Because these guys would last for days on the cross. And so they go and uh, the, the two thieves that are on both sides of Jesus are still alive. And they basically kill those guys off while they're on the crosses. And then there's Jesus and Jesus is already dead. All the other horrible stuff that he went through was enough that that he couldn't survive for days on the cross. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus from John 3 take Jesus' body down. As soon as they touch Jesus' dead body, they are ceremonially unclean for seven days. They take his body, they take 75 pounds of embalming salts and cloth, like what I wrapped the Afrikoman in, 
they get, they get to a nearby new tomb that was belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, and it would have been expensive. It says it's nearby. It would have cost him a whole bunch of money, especially if nobody is ever in it. This is like a brand new built house that you would build that you're going to leave to your great grandkids as an inheritance. I mean, this is like a big deal was a tomb. And they embalm Jesus. So the cost of the tomb, the cost of all of the embalming stuff would have been very expensive because the only thing you buy it for is funerals and you got to buy it before the Sabbath ends. Supply and demand, it still worked then. So all of that's expensive. Plus now they're unclean. They have completely ruined the next seven days feast of unleavened bread, which just started the night before. They can't celebrate with their families. One of the best holidays of the whole year they are now ceremonially unclean and they got to go camp out in the unclean shack. And at least they're together in their uncleanliness, but they, they can't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When the seven days is over, they have to pay money for all the special sacrifices to make them clean again after touching a dead body. So all of that's expensive. Do you get the idea of what I'm trying to say? This is really expensive for these guys. Not to mention dangerous because Pilate would kill people like that. So they go to Pilate, they ask for Jesus' body, they take it down, they put it in a tomb. They roll a stone in front of the tomb that's heavy enough, heavy enough and big enough that after the Sabbath is over, you get to Sunday morning when the sun has come up and it's the third day and the Marys are together and they're like, how are we even, they're, they're bringing stuff. So this is gross. The embalming process of a dead body back then was not like, you know, shipping to Pierre Funeral Homes, we have the visitation, and then we all go home. This was, you show up every couple weeks, and you do more things, and then you show up a couple weeks after that, and you do more things. So the, the various, there's like three Marys, three ladies named Mary. They're all coming on Sunday morning with a whole bunch of more embalming stuff to continue the embalming process. And this was an act of love that you do for your loved ones to continue this process on. And they're worried. How are we going to get into the tomb? Because that rock is too heavy. That rock is too big to move. How do we get in there? There's a this barrier. Well, you heard the story before. We talked about it. A couple years ago, there was an earthquake on Easter, which was really hilarious. But the morning they go, there's an earthquake. And there's an angel and the... Roman guards that are guarding the tomb all fall over like they're dead because they're so afraid. And there's an angel sitting on the rock when the Marys show up and, you know, they see and they, they talk to each other and they go in and they see that Jesus isn't there. When they come into the tomb and they look, there's an angel on the rock and there's an angel down in the tomb. And what is it? It's the two angels that are on the mercy seat looking at each other with their wings over the lid. Because what did God tell Moses? Into this put the testimony I'm going to give you. And the best testimony that God ever gave us was his son. So when he said, you're going to put in there the testimony I give you, he was foreshadowing you are going to put into a box 
the best testimony I ever give you. You're going to kill my one and only son. And he's going to come out. So Jesus isn't there, you guys. The testimony that they put in a box could not be contained in the box. And he comes out. And listen to this in Hebrews 9. The first covenant had regulations for worship in an early place of holiness. A tent was prepared. First section. There were all these different parts. They had a golden altar. They had incense. They had the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. They had all these things. But into the second room, only the high priest goes just once a year. But when Christ appeared, this is Hebrews. This is a good way to remember this. This is Hebrews 9.1.1, right? When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, his own body, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's that cup of redemption. Jesus paid. He secured it. When the priests used to do sacrifices, they would do one sacrifice for themselves, for all of their sins, and now I'm going to do a sacrifice for all the sins of the people. Jesus gave himself because he had never sinned. He didn't have to make atonement for himself. He only had to make atonement for the others. And the thing that he gave as a sacrifice was dead, so it counts as a sacrifice, but now it lives forever, which is him interceding for us, so he never has to be sacrificed again. Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. If everything on earth was a shadow of heaven, how much better the sacrifice has to be for heaven, and it's Jesus. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. I love that last little bit. Jesus is not in heaven standing before God because of himself. He did that for a long time. He's a part of the Trinity. He's part of the three in one. But he came and died and sacrificed and rose from the dead on our behalf. At the end of Hebrews 9. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear for a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That we will have a resurrection just like Jesus had. It says that after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples could poke him. And bump into him and give him hugs. He fried fish and ate it. And he asked them, do you guys have anything to eat? Like, think about that. Jesus, risen from the dead, asks the disciples, do you have anything to eat? And they have fish and he eats it. So he's not some ethereal, 
right? I mean, otherwise that fish would have just fallen on the ground or something weird. He raises from the dead. He's sitting on the beach. He's got a fire burning. He's cooking fish. And he's like, hey, Peter, do you have any fish? Which is just a total dig. Because Peter only catches fish when Jesus is around. Otherwise, he's a complete failure as a fisherman. I can relate to that. Romans 8. The question is, what is Jesus doing right now? Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's God who says whether I'm right and wrong before God, not me. Not anybody else. Wow. Who is condemning Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is interceding for us. Hebrews 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. They kept dying and then you had to hire a new priest and then he would die and you would get another priest. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. It says that in the Bible. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so if I said something really stupid. Whatever. Sue might gasp. <gasps> Cindy would turn around and say, what he meant was, I did, I did, I did, I did. what just happened? Cindy made intercession for me before Sue. If I say something really bad and Mike's like, oh, that is it. And he starts marching up this middle aisle to just, punch me right in the nose and Martha jumps up and she goes hold on hold on hold on wait till we get in the parking lot after church <laughs> then just bust his face she made intercession for me before Mike so Jesus just think okay if God is the only judge that matters And there's this guy that never dies sitting next to God and he's saying, oh man, John, let me tell you about him. Oh, okay, okay. So Charmaine, she, let me tell you about her. He is always making intercession for you before God all the time. So when I feel stupid because I did something or I feel something, I feel stupid because somebody else did something or I feel no matter how I feel, there is always this perfect, perfect, perfect guy sitting next to God 
saying, oh, Sully, he is just, for real, Dan, I, I know him. You should, oh, yeah, he, that's all Jesus does all day long. Some of us give him more work to do than others. He does not mind it. And so he rose from the dead after dying for our sins to never die and to spend all of his time interceding for us until when? Until we see him face to face. And God the Father says, so this is the guy you've been telling me about. I knew him. I knew her. So glad to see you. Come on in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you died on the cross for our sins. And that you are always interceding for us. And that you will never die. Because, Lord, I need I need that. I need you. I need you to have died for my sins. And I need your constant intercession before God for me. And I praise you that you've also sent your Holy Spirit. We didn't talk about that much today, but you've sent your Holy Spirit into us as a seal and a promise and a guarantee that we get to see your face. We thank you and we exalt you and we wish you a happy Easter, Lord. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing.